We just uh, just thank you for this opportunity to come together in your name, in the name of Jesus. And I just pray for the uh, next 40 to 50 minutes that uh, I will decrease and that you will increase. And that your name will be uplifted here this morning. And that the love of Jesus will flow amongst us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. 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 All right. Good to see you this morning. JD's on vacation. Poor guy. I think he's out of Hilton Head right now in the in the waves. I feel sorry for him, but you know, I guess somebody's got to be there. So, so I want to have an opportunity. I've had something on my heart for a while, and the Lord's been kind of speaking to me. So sometimes I feel like if the Lord's speaking to me, then maybe. Uh, there's some others that might be in the same boat as me and need to hear it. So I'm going to share with you some uh, scriptures today that you'll be familiar with. I do have a little bit different twist to it. But uh, before I start, I kind of want to summarize. If you remember last year, right before J.D. got here, I did a six-week series on grace. And I really enjoyed doing that. And then isn't it amazing how the Lord always teaches you things? And a few weeks ago, I really got a life lesson in grace that I want to just kind of open up with. And uh, it was, um, we were having our our floors done at home, and uh, we stayed at my daughter, who just, her and her husband just bought a house over in Brownsburg, and right behind her house is this huge pond. And in this pond is fish. And it has a lot of I'm glad to see you smiling, hon. <laughs> in this pond, there's a lot of bass. There's, there's bluegill. There's sunfish. There's these huge carp. But we wanted, well, actually, Leanne, in her heart, wanted to know if there's any big catfish in there. Now, before I start and give this explanation, I do want to tell you and give a disclaimer. Okay. I was never a fisherman until I married Leanne, and I'm still not much of a fisherman. She is the fisherwoman in our family, and uh, she taught me how to fish. And so I thought I'd give that disclaimer before I started. So all she could talk about while we were over there was catching a catfish. And so she went to the store and bought chicken livers. And so... Evening came, and she baited her hook, and, and she made sure everything was covered, whatever you do, baiting with chicken livers. I always put night crawlers on, but that's all right. Chicken livers. And so she's got her, her pole or her line out in the, in the pond, and Anna and her husband Nick are all fishing. And I'm just kind of standing around harassing them a little and playing with the dogs and watching. And, and uh, they've been at it about 30 or 40 minutes. And so then... My daughter Anna needed something, so Leanne says, Anna, I'll go get it for you. Rod, would you watch my line a minute? So I said, being a good husband, of course I'll watch your line, dear. And so she no more than the door closed, then I felt a tug on the line. I felt more than a tug. It was a zzzz, you know. And so I remember Leanne taught me to set the hook, so I set the hook. And I battled this monster for about 
what seemed like several hours, but it was probably more like 10 minutes. And I brought it, finally got it up. <laughs> Don't you love that picture, Hud? <laughs> and, and so what I saw on that was the grace of God. I nicknamed him Mopey Catfish. <laughs> he was by far the biggest catfish I ever caught. But I thought it was a great example of grace. First of all, I didn't deserve it. Right, Leanne? <laughs> you know, but the Lord chose me to let me catch the biggest fish I ever caught in my life that moment. And Leanne was ecstatic for me. And so then I got to thinking, I was kind of sharing this, I teach at Trinity Mission on Tuesday mornings, and I was sharing this story at Trinity Mission, and I got to thinking there's actually three things in this story. The first is grace. The second comes from James 1, 13 and 14, dealing with sin, which says when we put bits, oops, I'm in the wrong place. There we go. James 1, 13, 14 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. This word enticed in the original Greek language is the same word used to lure a fish out of hiding. Bait, you know. So I'm thinking here, here's this big old catfish minding its own business, laying there on the bottom, and along comes this chicken liver. And I could almost see him going, that smells like chicken liver. That looks like chicken liver. Mmm, chicken liver, you know. And so here's this enticement which sin does to us. And so he thought, it could be a trap, but boy, that looks good. And what did he do? Boom, he bit it, you know? So that was the second lesson. The third lesson, I'm trying to hurry through this, it had nothing to do with today's mes message. But... <laughs> but the third lesson comes further in James, James chapter 3, 3 through 6. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take shifts as an example, although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and itself set on fire by hell. Well, I use that as an example because, you know, it, I didn't get in trouble for grace and me getting the fish. And I didn't get in trouble for luring that poor old catfish onto that chicken liver. But where I really got in trouble was my own tongue making boasts, and then posting on Facebook how I was teaching my wife how to fish for catfish. <laughs> so there's a lot to be learned in life's lessons, amen? Okay. 
So today we're going to look at a familiar scripture. It has nothing to do with this fish story. And it's in chapter 8 of Luke. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. In chapter 8 of Luke, Jesus has traveled from town to village, one to another, and he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. He tells many parables. He calms the storm. And he drove a whole bunch of demons out of a man named Legion, and he drove them into a herd of pigs. And so now we're up to Luke Chapter 8, verse 40, where we're going to start this morning. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. When the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. A familiar story. I'm also going to... Mark tells a lot of the same story. You don't need to turn there. But Mark chapter 5, So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up from behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, If I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. So here we are. Verse 1 tells us that a crowd welcomed him. As Jesus came to the shores of Capernaum, there was a crowd there to welcome him. And now Jairus, who was a leader of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, and he was begging Jesus for a miracle. And Jesus, without a word, got up, and they set out towards his house. But on the way, 
they're greeted with a woman. A woman who has had a flow of blood for 12 years. This is a woman that for 12 years has been growing weaker and weaker from the blood flow that will not stop. In the scripture, there's no mention of a husband. If she had one in that day and age, it would have been so easy for him to give her a certificate of divorce. Because in that day, it was, it was easy for a man to divorce his wife. He could come up with any excuse. She burned his toast. Okay, I'm getting rid of her. And he might have left years ago. And as a Jewish, unclean woman, had she a husband, they could have never had physical relationship. It could be that she didn't have a husband. And if she didn't, it would have been almost impossible for her to have one. Because, once again, she could not touch or be touched by anyone in any way because she was considered unclean. So she would have been a complete outcast in her society. Well, there's three things in Jewish daily life that can make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. The first one is touching a dead body. The second is menstrual bleeding. And the third is leprosy. And so 12 years, she could do nothing in society. 12 years, she couldn't even go to her place of worship. She was incurable. She'd spent all her money on doctors, and none of them could help her. She still suffered the pain, and all the treatments, the only thing they succeeded in doing was to make her broke and make her poor. And Mark tells us that she suffered many things from many physicians searching for an accurate diagnosis, cure. I hate it when I can't read my own writing. Diagnosis. I knew I could say that. Oh, boy. So now, 12 years, 12 years, she's desperate. Wouldn't you be desperate? 12 years, she's an outcast. She's a desperate woman. She had no hope for her problem. She was broke. She was cut off from her family. She was cut off from society in itself. She was cut off from her church. Her health was failing. She was growing weaker and weaker. I imagine she probably couldn't feel any lower. And I'm sure she had to deal with anger and bitterness. She probably had to deal with anger towards her circumstances. Maybe even anger towards a God that would let her continue in those circumstances. I'm sure she battled loneliness. No one could be around her. Self-hatred. Fear of the future. Alienation from God. I imagine all these things she battled. She indeed was a desperate woman. Mark tells us she heard about this man, Jesus. She heard about Jesus. Once again, in the, in the original language, there's a, something that doesn't come out entirely in the translation, is, is that there's a lot of people named Jesus, but there was one Jesus. And the pronoun in this emphasizes she heard about this man, Jesus. 
So she heard about him, and she made a decision that maybe he was different from all those who had robbed her of her money and her faith. Maybe this man was different. And she decided if she could only touch him, she could be healed. And so she acted on her faith. She had many things to overcome. She had to overcome her own physical weakness. She had to face her own hopelessness. She had to face her own despair. She had to overcome the crowd surrounding Jesus. You ever, you ever been to a Colts game? And then when you come down and how you're just packed in there? You know, you ever been in a situation where, where you just can't hardly breathe because the crowd's so thick? Well, this is one of these kind of situations. This was just not a few people surrounding Jesus. They were packed in. They wanted to get a glimpse of him. They wanted, all of them wanted to touch this man. And so she had to overcome this crowd that was surrounding him. And then... Once she got there, she had to force her way, even in her weakness, through this crowd. And she had to do that without calling attention to herself because she was an unclean woman that shouldn't even be there. Actually, for her to even walk down the street, what she should have been doing is yelling, unclean, unclean, to warn people that an unclean person was coming down the street because that was what they had to do in that day. So she had to also overcome the social and religious stigma that she dare not touch Jesus because if she came and she touched Jesus, she would make him unclean too. Imagine that, making the God of this universe unclean. That's, what audacity to do that, you know? To touch the Lord being an unclean woman. But she was desperate. She was desperate and she came from behind and she reached in just thinking, if I could just touch that him, if I could just touch his garment, then I could be healed and so she reached through the crowd, and she reached through, and in her desperation, she touched his hem. And immediately, Scripture tells us, the flow of blood stopped. She came secretly from behind because she knew she was unworthy to approach him directly. And so she snuck up from behind. But she was immediately healed. No doubt she probably wanted to sneak away and remain hidden. To go unnoticed and go home and live a normal life. You know, I remember, I remember 27 years ago in my own life. And I remember when, when I remember knowing God was real and wanting to get close to him. But I didn't want to get crazy. I wanted to have a normal life. You know, I, I wanted to have God in my life, but I wanted it to be normal. I certainly didn't want to be like one of those people who would carry their Bibles around and preach at people. I wanted to be normal. And I, I believe she wanted to sneak away, go home, and be normal. Because now, 
literally in seven days, because you had to wait seven days, in seven days she would be clean. She could carry on her life again. And no one would even know what she did. But with a touch of faith, she drew power from Jesus. This morning, Steve mentioned the power. The power. She drew power from Jesus. And Jesus said, immediately he said, Somebody touched me, for I perceive power going out from me. Now, this is Jesus. You know, I think he knew exactly who touched him. I don't think he was surprised at all. And in Mark's account, it tells us that she felt she was healed. Again, this word felt normally is translated no. It's from the, from the Greek word genosko. And genosko means no, that she knew she was healed. This word is a strong word for no. You can say, okay, do you know this or that? And you can say, yeah, I know that. Or you, can you say, uh, do you know President Obama? And you can say, yeah, I know President Obama. Whatever you want to think one way or another, you know him. But you don't really know him, do you? You know, because this word know is really depicted as, as in a marriage when a husband knows his wife. A very close, intimate relationship. And so this is emphasizing the no. And so this is emphasizing this woman knew she was healed immediately when she touched Jesus. But she knew, but she also knew that Jesus knew. Because Jesus asked that question. Now I like this. The disciple replied. I like to translate you got to be kidding, Jesus. <laughs> Look at this crowd. Of course somebody touched you. Who do we know who it was? You know? And then think of poor Jairus. He's in a hurry. His daughter's dying. Could you think what might be going through his mind? Looking at his sundial on his arm? Thinking, Jesus... Time is wasting. we got to go. Come on. What are you doing worrying about somebody that touched you? I mean, my gosh. He says, come on, Jesus. My daughter's dying. But Mark 5.32 says that Jesus looked round about to see who had done this thing. Literally, that his eyes was piercing into the crowd. She really didn't expect to be detected. But when he asked, she knew he knew. So now, this is the point of the message I want to get at. What I want to emphasize this morning is desperation. This desperate woman came forward trembling, shaking like a leaf. Remember something here. Do you know what the penalty is for an unclean person to deliberately touch a clean person? Probably not. We don't have that going on now. But it was death. If you were an unclean person 
and you deliberately went up to someone and touched them because that made them unclean, then your sentence is death. So here she comes, trembling at Jesus' feet, knowing she deserved death. Now again, this message wasn't on grace, but what does that remind you of? Our lives. We deserved death. We deserved death, but Jesus gave us life. And in the same way, she fell at Jesus' feet, knowing her confession was a death sentence. And she made public for all to hear about her faith. And Jesus answered her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So not only, not only did Jesus give her life instead of death, but you know, this is the only place in Scripture that Jesus ever calls anyone daughter. I was amazed with that. He called her daughter. And then Jairus is told that his daughter's dead. But Jesus looks at him and he says, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she'll be healed. So he believed it and she was healed. I'm not going to go and read through the rest of the story because it is a familiar story to us. And last week, if you remember, one of the scriptures that J.D. brought up was from Second Timothy. And you're wondering, what's that got to do with this? For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And this was from who? Apostle Paul. And one thing that J.D. challenged us last week, and the same thing that I, I want to challenge us with, with today, I want to challenge myself with, is that what keeps us from being poured out? Because we know when Paul went home to be at the Lord, he was literally poured out, right? And, you know, I want, personally, I would really love... For that to be on my tombstone someday. You know? Because I want that same thing. I want to be poured out. I don't want anything left of me. But what keeps us from that? You know, usually the scriptures we looked at today from Luke and Mark is usually taught, uh, taught about physical healing, taught about faith. But you know... I've been an elder in the body of Christ for a lot of years, a past elder. And for eight years, I was an associate pastor. And I'll be honest with you, I have prayed for a lot of people through the years. A lot of people. Some I've seen healed. Right, Charlie? A lot of prayers were going your way the last few weeks. But you know, others I've seen die. And I've seen these verses taken by a, a group of Christians who will use them to abuse those who have terminal diseases. 
And I've heard people told with cancer and different things that if they could only have enough faith, they would be healed. After all, isn't that what the scriptures teach here? Their faith healed them. But you see, I believe Jesus healed them. And, you know, I'm, I'm confused in that area. I do know that in James it tells us if there are any sick among you, call your elders together, have them pray for you. You need to do that more, in all honesty. But, you know, there's other times, it's, it's like J.D. mentioned last week. Is it a waste? We're all going to end up in that casket someday if the Lord doesn't come back first. You know, even Lazarus died again. You know? And I've seen some people that God has used so much in their afflictions. I, Leanne and I have a friend in, in Celebrate Recovery who, who, who's been in a wheelchair for a lot of years. And it was after she got in the wheelchair, she gave her life to Christ. And you know, Christ uses her immensely. When you see someone in that chair who the, the love of the Lord flows out of, you pay attention. You know, she rejoices, not in her situation, but she rejoices in the fact that she was dead and now she's alive. She rejoices in that, that Jesus gave her a new life. And I do know this, that every person, every believer that I have ever prayed for that died, lived again. And they were healed ultimately. So I'm not going to teach on this scripture on physical healing. I think there's something even greater in these scriptures and I think the most overlooked healing in the scriptures are the spiritual healing, is the spiritual healing that takes place. And that's what I really want to pay attention to this morning. First of all, looking at, at Jairus. Jairus was a desperate man. It tells us Jairus was a synagogue leader. You see... What we don't normally see in this, but they understood in Jesus' day what that meant, is now Jairus is going to become an outcast amongst those around him who, because he, in desperation, sought out Jesus, whom the Jewish synagogue hated. But Jairus was desperate. This woman was desperate, and she sought out Jesus. But I believe today, especially in America, in the church in America today, I really believe that there is a spiritual disease in the church that is running rampant. I believe there's a disease that, that keeps many, many Christians from being poured out. Now, for lack of a better word for this disease, because I made it up, I'm going to call this disease wall-itis. Wall-itis. And in America today, myself including, so many times we're not being poured out like a drink offering because as Christians, 
We have built so many walls around us. We have walls surrounding our hearts. So many times, and, and I deal so much in this, especially when I'm, when I'm dealing with Celebrate Recovery and, and working with addicts and, and drunks and, and different folks. And, and, uh, and I see it so much in the church too. Especially at young ages, when we get hurt, we build walls. We build walls around our hearts. You know, we're not going to let it be penetrated. So we have this wall. And then, not only do we so often build walls around our hearts, we build walls surrounding our families. Now, sometimes walls aren't all bad. In, in ancient times, walls were meant for what? Protection, you know. I remember when my daughter Anna was growing up. I built some walls around her. I remember, you know, first of all, she was not going to date till she turned 16. When she started getting close to 16, I was starting to change my mind. Maybe 21 would have been a better age. But unfortunately, I'd already said this. And, and uh, you know, I remember the first young man that came around, and I chased him off fairly quickly. And then I remember when my son-in-law, Nick, showed up, and... Uh, Nick passed a lot of tests. You know, I, I remember making him watch things on the Internet, like when uh, pigs are taken and they lose their manhood. <laughs> and I said, Nick, you touch my daughter, this is you. And then I'm going to put a billet, bullet between your eyes. You know, Chris, I was kind of hoping Josh would be here today because I'm going to tell him, you, know, you think I'm crazy, look at Jay. <laughs> Sorry, Emily. Oh, where was I? <laughs> but, you know, so I'm not saying all walls are bad. But the problem is we build these thick walls and we do it for protection, but we keep everything out. We, we build these walls around our churches. We do that so often. We build walls around our churches and nobody different's going to get in. Oh my gosh, what would that mean? We build walls around our communities. And I think so much. How can I love my neighbor if I don't even know him? Seriously. How can I love my neighbor if I don't know him? What if they're different? What if they're not believers? Oh my God. <laughs> you know... My son Lance is starting a brewery in Chicago. He's been successful in one business, and now he's also branching out, starting another. Now, that hasn't entirely pleased me. I mean, I am a... I, in, in, uh, the Lord freed me from alcohol and drug addictions 27 years ago. I work a lot with Celebrate Recovery, Trinity Mission. I have a ministry in the jail. And so I do a lot of work in the ministry of freeing those from addictions. And so, but I support my son. Because this is one area that I used to really be very um, 
opinionated in. And I really would point a finger at a Christian that drank, and I would be very hard on my own kids who, once they turned 21, had that freedom. Not before. That's against the law. And so along the way, God has given me a lot of grace to realize that not everyone is like me. Not everyone drinks and gets drunk. For me, I drank, I got drunk, I fell down, no problem. You know, not everyone's like that. And so I didn't publicize. He was doing a fundraiser, which I didn't really publicize that to get people to help fund that because I have my convictions. I don't want to be a stumbling block to those I work with. On the other hand, Leanne and I did support our son. And we went up to Chicago a couple weeks ago, and he had a fundraiser in a bar there. It was actually probably one of the... I spent three hours in a bar that night, and I remember looking at Leanne as we left saying, you know, I don't ever remember my life walking out of a bar three years late, or three hours later and being completely sober, you know. So it had been several years since I'd been in a in a bar like that. But they had an interesting band playing that night called Flatfoot 56. And Flatfoot 56 is a Christian straight edge, which means alcohol, drug-free, straight edge Christian punk band. They play at Cornerstone, which this year, I guess, is last year for Cornerstone. That breaks my heart. But they play at Cornerstone. And so it was kind of interesting in the midst of this crowded bar. And, and the lead singer is six foot ten, you know. And his brothers are with him. And their dad's a pastor in Nashville, Indiana. And, in the midst, and they were playing an acoustic set, which I kind of was kind of glad of because I like a lot of different styles of music. But there's some style. I used to remember going to Ichthus and you hear some of the bands going, Jesus, you know, and and everybody's slamming against each other. And I was trying to think, now where's the Holy Spirit in this? But, you know, I'm not going to judge. But they played an acoustic set, and it was so neat because also, and I really asked for this congregation to pray for my son Lance, because ever since he's been 14, he's been running from God. When he was 14, his best friend blew his head off. And Lance has been mad at God ever since. And uh, I pray for Lance constantly. But what was really neat is being in this bar, here's this band playing acoustically, and they're playing I'll Fly Away. And you have all these people with their beer in their hand, you know, slapping the sides, singing along, I'll Fly Away. And I thought, wow. This is really neat. You know, because for years I had built a wall around myself. I would never have been in something like that. I remember reading, I think it was last year, there was a church, and I, and I, I could be wrong, I think Leanne would probably know this more than I, and I probably shouldn't even mention since I don't have all the facts, but I think it was Nashville, Tennessee, that there was a church that started up, and on Sundays they met in a gay bar. And there was a lot of people in the church that wrote them hate letters. And I thought, that sounds like something Jesus would do. Not write the hate letters. <laughs> you know? And I have a friend who 
has a friend then down in Greencastle, has a little church, and him and his wife are very gifted musically. And, and, and they, play, they play around this area some too, and they'll go into bars and they'll sing. And, and uh, they get hate letters because they'll go in bars and play music. But a few weeks ago, I remember they were opening up and they were doing their sound check. And, and uh, this man's wife has written a lot of songs. And as she was warming up, there was a drunk at the bar that just started bawling. And felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit come upon him. But we build up walls so much. And I think, in all honesty, that's why on Sunday mornings we look around. And in a lot of places in America, churches really aren't growing with new believers. We have walls. It's interesting, a week from, a week from this Monday, Pink Floyd, well not Pink Floyd, but Roger Walters, is going to be playing at uh, Banker's Life. And he's going to do The Wall came from Pink Floyd. But what's interesting, I still remember the album cover. But what's it say, Builds Walls? Can anybody remember that? Anybody in their hippie days here? Chris, you remember that? Remember what it says, what builds walls? Right on their album. Fear. Fear builds walls. Fear builds walls. You know, I have an opportunity being involved with Celebrate Recovery... I give my testimony time to time. And I've also been, a couple weeks ago, I I got invited to Attica to the Celebrate Recovery there. I gave my testimony and getting ready to go to Terre Haute and just different openings are happening around the state. And I'm kind of excited about that. But one thing that in my testimony, for one thing, we have to have it written down and it has to be 20 minutes. It's hard for me to talk for just 20 minutes, I'll be honest with you. And it's hard to go back and, and talk about everything the Lord did in 20 minutes, so I try to talk fast. But one thing that's in my Celebrate Recovery... I didn't make you mad, did I, hon? Okay. Now I did. I don't ever embarrass her. I shouldn't be lying on the pulpit, should I? But one thing in my Celebrate Recovery testimony that... I talk about that. Normally I don't, because I've, I've given testimony through the years in churches. And there's times I love to give a te- if I teach in Romans 7, I'd love to give a testimony of when that first sermon I ever heard. But there's something I do a little bit different with the Celebrate Recovery testimonies that I get a little bit more explicit in, in, a, in a time in my childhood when I, I went through a lot of uh, domestic violence with a stepfather. And I get very explicit in this, and, and I'm not going to go as deep here, but, you know, I still remember a time when literally I went to school the day before Christmas vacation as a young boy covered with my mother's blood because the night before my stepfather had almost killed her. In fact, I didn't know if she was dead or alive. My brother dropped me off at school, and I remember that uh, everyone was really joyous and you know it's the last day half day then you're out for christmas vacation and i didn't i didn't know where i was going to go after school let out i didn't know if my mom was alive you know the last last thing i remembered was her ear hanging by a shred of skin and uh but i share that because that was the night i really built walls around my own heart 
And we build them out of protection. And so many times, especially as kids, you know, no kid should have to do, go through things that many of us have gone through. Whether it be some, whatever abuse it is. But we build walls to protect ourselves. And, and you know, we're not going to be hurt again like that. By golly, you know, you're not going to hurt me again. So I'm going to build this wall to keep it out. But the problem is, when we keep that out, we keep everything from penetrating as deep as it should go. And I remember 27 years ago, I became desperate that I wanted these walls to come down because I had a glimpse of who God was and I wanted a part of it. But these walls around my heart was keeping me from it. And I wanted to be gone. And in desperation, in a spiritual sense, I too reached out for that M. And Jesus is there to heal us. I don't understand physical healing. But I understand spiritual healing. And I know Jesus is going to heal if we ask him. But I do believe we need to be desperate. The desperation of Jairus caused a religious man to become desperate enough to reach out to Jesus. The woman with the issue of blood became desperate enough to not only pass through this crowd and touch Jesus, but also to fall at his feet and make a confession of faith that could have meant her death. And you know, I believe that a lot what's wrong in America today is we don't really face death. We don't really face death for our faith. A lot of times we face death, face death from our lifestyles. I just got my blood sugar report last week, and now I'm bicycling more and trying to eat better and happy about it. (laughs) I need to become a a little more desperate for that. I keep telling myself, I like hills. I like hills. I'd rather be riding my Harley. But the problem is, we really aren't desperate in America. And we're content to live behind our walls because it's what we've always known. And you know, for a lot of years, I lived behind my wall of protection. But in the last verse I'm going to talk about today it comes from First Peter. I want to qualify it a little bit because. Many of us can have reasons that have walls. Good reasons. Things have happened to us that are so ungodly it's hard to speak about them. But I want to go back. Not long after Jesus was crucified. But we're coming into a time that the Emperor Nero is getting ready or is in power. And Peter is addressing a group of people, a group of Christians, who have already suffered many things. In that day and age, to profess to be a Christian, you pretty well lost your livelihood. Because nobody wanted to employ a Christian. 
You know, most of us today, the biggest thing we face is possibility of a little being made fun of behind our backs. You know, seriously. Most of us don't face discrimination, anything like they did. They may be coming. If that day comes, I think you're going to see more desperate reaching for Jesus. But what's about to happen is that there's a that the Emperor Nero is going to become persecuting Christians like never before. Literally, he's going to put them in the Colosseum to face death. He's going to he he one of his things he'd love to do was he'd have his wild parties every night. And you know, then we didn't have street lights. They didn't have street lights. And so to light up his his parties, he would take Christians, he would pour tar over them, and then light them on fire. And that would light up his, his wild parties. So this group of people knew what persecution was. They knew what it meant to be desperate enough to want their lives to change that it could mean even their own physical deaths. And so Peter, in First Peter it says... Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's our hope. That's our entire hope. That we know no matter what this life brings, no matter what our circumstances are, that because Jesus was raised from the dead, that by believing in him, we too will be raised from the dead. Isn't that exciting? You know, I think about that a lot. And I think about this trade I did 27 years ago. And I think for 31 years I was completely blind that God was offering me this trade, my sin, his eternal life. Now I look back and that's a no-brainer. But for 31 years, I was blind to that. And just like the woman, as she touched Jesus, him, and was healed, she deserved to die. We deserved to die. We deserved death. And he gave us life. And he gave it to us abundantly. And our hope, the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And I left off. No. Oops. I'm not used to this. Okay. In all of this, greatly rejoice. In all of this, greatly rejoice. If your family is being tarred and burnt, greatly rejoice. If you're facing the lions in the Colosseum, greatly rejoice. If you cannot earn your living, greatly rejoice. For now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold 
which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, if it doesn't kill you, it should make us better. Amen? Worship team, would you come on up? You know, I really believe what the message I want to portray today was was a message of encouragement. I need to get out of the way. Sorry about that. It was a message of encouragement. Because like I said when I started, it's not a finger-pointing time, but it's a time to reflect and a time to encourage and a thing. You know, let's be like the Apostle Paul and be able to say, being poured out like a drink offering. Go ahead.
earthly bread This is my daily bread to pour us out like an offering not all of us can be up front at the pulpit not all of us can be in in a jail ministry sometimes we wonder Lord where is it that you want to use me but all of us can love our neighbors as ourselves and all of us can live our lives where those around us will wonder why do they have so much joy? What is it that's different about them? And there's many times on a Sunday morning we've sang this song and there's so many times I wanted to stand up and say, say church, let's be desperate. Let's don't be ordinary. Don't, let's just don't be ordinary. Let's be desperate. And this morning, I just, I just want to encourage you, especially if you have any walls that are still left, to just reach out in desperation. And if you don't think you have any walls, reach out in desperation for your pride. Because the Lord wants to use us. The Lord wants us to be desperate for Him. And as we finish singing this song this morning, let's sing it to the Lord as though we are desperate people. As we're desperate to be healed, desperate to be healed of our apathy, desperate to be healed of all the things that restrain us from being all that we're called to be. Let's be desperate this morning, church. Let's be desperate.
this is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread. Your very word spoken. just come before you today um, praising you for who you are thanking you for every breath that we breathe in lord thank you so much for the life that you've given each one of us and lord thank you for putting it in our minds that we know that if we're facing an illness it's just a temporary thing lord for we know we're going to get new bodies someday we know that we'll be done with all the pains and the struggles that this earth brings for you've overcome this earth lord and overcame everything that's in it. Lord, we praise you and we honor you and we thank you for this day. Lord, if there's any person that's new here, we just praise, praise you that, uh, that you'll have some of our folks visit them and, and make them feel welcome. Because that's what your body is, Lord. It's just a big family. Lord, we thank you again for being here and blessing us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.